Or might it be to go in the opposite direction, to go still further, that is, in the movement of the market, of decoding and deterritorialization? For perhaps the flows are not yet deterritorialized enough, not decoded enough, from the viewpoint of a theory and a practice of a highly schizophrenic character, not to withdraw from the process, but to go further, to accelerate the process, as Nietzsche put it. In this manner, the truth is that we haven't seen anything yet. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, just want to throw out, we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you're enjoying the show, please consider throwing us a buck a month there. And, you know, we understand times are hard, so if you can't contribute in that capacity, consider dropping us a review on iTunes. And if you say fear is the mind killer in your review, I will give you a shout out on the on the next week's episode. I want to give a shout out to Sean M underscore M for dropping the banger episode review on iTunes. Our guest today is Gil, co-host of the What's Left of Philosophy podcast and translator of French philosophy. Gil is joining us to look at the last three sections of Anti-Oedipus. And so- Chapter three. Chapter three, yeah. Gil, thanks so much for joining us. You can now read us line by line of your CV and then we can get started. <laughs> wow, thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. I love this project. I love the pod and it's a, it's a delight. It's interesting. We were talking before we started about how you and I both kind of came upon Anti-Oedipus at a formative stage when we were really, I guess, starting to- get into philosophy. Do you want to say just a little bit about either recap what you told us or maybe say just a little bit about what this text means to you and, and kind of why we wanted to reach out reach out to you and, and have you on today? Yeah, I mean, I first encountered this book over 10 years ago when I was an undergraduate studying philosophy. And I actually took a class in the philosophy of contemporary music in which I read the refrain chapter from A Thousand Plateaus. And it really spoke to me, as you all know, like just a very different way of thinking and you know very productive generative concepts it seemed capable of like producing something and so it, when time came to like pick a project to work on for like a thesis i suggested this thousand plateaus project to my director the chair of the program at the time and he said well you know why don't you do anti-oedipus instead unlike a thousand plateaus that book has an argument <laughs> you can actually structure a coherent project around it and so that's what i did i spent like an entire year really deep in this text and it honestly maybe more than anything else was like intellectually formative for me and changed a lot about how I thought about myself in relationship to others, thinking about questions of like emergent subjectivity and its relationship to desire, the primacy of desire, and how all of this sort of stuff is configured in relationship to social formation, social organization. And it's obviously also a really powerful and in some ways disturbing critique of capitalism that kind of pulls open Pandora's box and shows us just what we're dealing with here, the unnameable thing. So it's like a really important book for me and I haven't spent tons of time with it. And a lot of that 
time in the interim, I got really invested in early modern philosophy. And so I'm really excited to come back to it and talk about it with you all. I like this notion that at least anti-Oedipus has, has an argument because counterintuitively, or at least as a juxtaposing against what your director said, A Thousand Plateaus is written on, there's so much secondary literature on it. There's, there's so many analyses of it. And obviously, you, you know, you could just take a passage out of a plateau, not let alone one plateau and have theses written on it. But anti-Oedipus doesn't really feel as as well plumbed, even if it was kind of a, an immediate quote unquote bestseller when it came out. Yeah, it's true. There's comparatively much less written on it and it's sort of reception in Anglo-American philosophy, I think at least has been much more muted, I think in the long run. I mean, they say about a thousand plateaus, right? That it's, you should treat it like a record, right? And maybe you like a certain track. And so you run out the grooves on that one. And if you don't like one of the plateaus, like skip that track, right? And I think that that allowed a lot of people to pick up and work with it. It's a toolbox for Mm -hmm. whatever it was that they were interested in the moment. Whereas anti-Oedipus really does focus your attention on a couple of precise, specific kinds of problems. There's like one piece of secondary on it that I actually quite like by John Russin called Desiring Production and Spirit, Hmm. which like reads what's going on in this book as like a very heterodox entry into like post-Kantian German idealism. Which is fascinating. We're like, I love yeah, it. desiring production is something like Geist. Like this <laughs> yeah. is the proper the proper way to understand now also universal history on top of everything else. Pache Deleuze, sorry Deleuze. I, like, I think yeah, that uh, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. Ray Brassier was something saying something like that, right? I think so. I think we kind of kind of got got him to say something like that. We might have. I might have put the words in his mouth to mention something like this, so that it, perhaps the and Guattari, perhaps anti-Oedipus completes German idealism or something. It was it was kind of a quip, but it's maybe it like, was uh, or maybe it was Dan Smith. I'm thinking of may- maybe because yeah. he was really going in on the way that the three critiques sort of align with. I That's guess. right. I forget what the <clears throat> I forget what the three other what it matches up to, but it's something like God, the family. And I forget what the others are or other is rather. It's the Holy Trinity. Right. And so that makes sense. World yeah. and soul. Right. Dan Smith is also helpful because he reads the Luz in terms of like an inverted critique of Kant. So it makes sense coming from him. It's also the case that in Antietopus, they write explicitly at some point that what they're doing is a transcendental materialist analysis. Yes. yes. Right. Yeah. A transcendental materialist analysis of desire or desiring production, mm-hmm. where like the question is in chapter two, I know you guys have done like a ton of episodes just on chapter two, but after you identify each of the three syntheses of production or of desire, the yep. task analytically is to distinguish between its imminent and its transcendent usages. That's right. right? That's right yeah. It's like a like a transcendental dialectic of desire, right? Where and they use to, the term yeah. paralogisms, right? They do, the unconscious. yeah, explicitly. Yeah. So yeah. it is, you're right. It is, uh, that's a good point to bring up about this. Uh, maybe if they completed German idealism with anti-Oedipus, <laughs> then why, why is there, they already had a projected volume too. I think, I guess because I think, was it, I, I was either Stavall or, or Dan who said that there was so much in the anti-Oedipus papers, which gladly have been translated, that it was almost like they were already working towards a thousand plateaus, which concurrently was kind of the yeah, vibe. which is kind of interesting because it goes against because I reread the Nick Lamb pieces that you cite in your paper because, you know, Gil shared with us one of his papers specifically on some of these sections that we read capitalist unbecoming what disintegration, displacement, and the state form. That's the title of your paper. You cite two Nick Land essays, which are commonly, which was like the early land, right? You know, uh, Kant, Capital, and the Prohibition of Incest, and then Making It With Death. I forget the subtitle. It's on Deleuze, right? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Make, making It With Death. Well, just making it with that. But the main point I'm, I'm saying is 
with Nick Land's reading, Anti-Oedipus is kind of the radical critique and has these radical takes on death and a thousand plateaus kind of pussies out on it, right? And kind of tries to become this cautionary tale and all of these things. But it's interesting that they would have already had so much to work from right. that some of the bulk of A Thousand Plateaus was already in formation. So it, mm-hmm. at the time that this was published. So, you know, it's hard to square was, against his kind of picking and choosing between the two. Was that Dan Smith or Stavall that had said that? Because Stavall had gone to Warwick, I think, for a conference at one point back in the sort of heyday of the CCR. It was it was Stavall who, who didn't want to name drop uh, <laughs> yeah mr right. land i suppose uh, you're right. so anyway oh, it's a minefield <laughs> i mean i think that there is something to the take though there is something i mean even like the the line that you read coop at the beginning of this right at the end of section nine right like maybe the thing is to just go all the way in the other direction continue right. along the, the deterritorializing schizophrenizing process right the absolute limit and I do think that they are much more, and that's like the end of the book too. Like by the time you get to the end of of part of chapter four, like they're saying things like, you know, we'll never have gone far enough in deterritorializing, right? Yeah, yeah. But then by the time you get to, you know, the chapters like on the BWO in A Thousand Plateaus, like they're much more cautious and restricted, I think. Yeah. You know, they want to like say things like, you know, don't go too fast. You know, there's always these like forms of relapse you can lose yourself in a way that's not productive you know it can become like a a, a toxic body without organs or an anemic I, I, one or something so, like this. Yeah. some of this some of this seems like it becomes this the notion of strata and de-stratification and even de-subjectification become much more of a touchstone in a thousand plateaus then even the notion of strata or stratification isn't really articulated as much here right it's different terminology and we talked before the episode about um you know, Bias for Bar, the, the Abbasidaire episode or Abbasidaire letter on drinking, where, you know, Claire Parnay, the interviewer, is, is kind of pushing Deleuze about the reception of the work with Guattari and by young people and this notion that one of the stereotypes, one of the stereotypical critiques was that it gave kind of like a free reign and a free license to experiment with drugs and all these things. And, you know, Deleuze, this gets a little, he gets a little defensive. It's one it's of the touchy, few, yeah. He gets a little defensive about this. And so I wonder too if if part of the caution that really comes out in a thousand plateaus that we're describing and that Nick Lamb points out very clearly in making with death as some of the things that he's finding issue with is some of the reception seems to have, have been this critique where it's like, oh, you just yeah, your revolutionary heroes are are schizos, you know, and and you just you you're just all about taking drugs and, you know, tune in, drop out, whatever the fuck, you know? And I, I wonder right. if, if that's some of the sensitivity that gets channeled into the second volume. Uh, no, that seems right. Yeah. And I mean, he's very clear in that interview. It's true that like, that was never their intention to like encourage that sort of like, you know, fully disintegrative libertinism or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially from the perspective of like, you know, political movement. This is clearly a book that wants to engender militants. Yes. <laughs> and it's pretty hard to be a, a good, well-organized militant if uh, you've just tuned in and dropped out. That's a good point. And it seems like the theme that of the revolutionary machine and the analytic machine kind of like working together, they seem to have been read as though they were separate. And the thing that separates them is just it's just taking taking drugs, although in a thousand plateaus, <laughs> they're more explicit about Castaneda, Don Juan and these things. But 
again, it's kind of a cautionary tale as well. Anyway, we're this is all kind of just context for discussing some of these some of these things that are in the background of this this analysis. And the first section we have on section nine, well, I guess the three sections we have the civilized capitalist machine, right? Is section nine? I think section ten is called capitalist representation, and then section eleven is Oedipus at last, right? right? Yep. Just to give a and of course, in these kind of things, the question of where to begin <laughs> is always fun. But I do like the opening lines of nine. If I remember, it's like, you know, the first great wave of deterritorialization comes with the despotic machine, but it's nothing in comparison to the decoding of flows, which is what we will see in full force in the civilized capitalist machine. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, although I'll let you guys open up and go anywhere you want with this, was that they kind of say, look, the desire for decoding and decoded desires have always existed. Just history is full of them. It's just that the kind of generalized, almost programmatic decoding of flows that capitalism and the capitalist machine is based on only comes into full force through this kind of uh, contingent conjuncture of all sorts of factors. So I don't know, I guess just kind of jump off from there. I don't even want to lead you guys into a question, just, yeah. just kind of thinking about these things broadly. I was thinking about what Dan Smith said about Deleuze being a philosopher of time and its relation to the despotic machine, because one of the things they say early on in this section is this interesting like gap that occurs and these two different methods of or ways that time operates at the synchronic and the diachronic. And they talk about how the despotic machine is synchronic, but the capitalist machine is diachronic. And that's why there's such an extended amount of time that passes between the Roman Empire, for example, and like the development of, of capitalism, of modern capitalism during the, during the industrial empire and beyond, or age and beyond. This is the Erstadt hypothesis, mm-hmm. right? It appears all at once in this like flash. All of a sudden there's transcendent unity and overcoding. But then like capitalism has this sort of it comes in weird waves. And part yeah. of the reason for it having to come in waves is on the one hand, as you said, Taylor, it's a wild series of completely contingent convergences. And in fact, as they point out, this is sort of fascinating too. The conditions for the possibility of the emergence of capitalism existed for a long time yeah. in a lot of different places. So the question becomes why then now, or why at that time and not elsewhere, or else when? And in part two, so there's that. And then the other thing is, It's because of the sort of double movement of the axiomatic. It can't have appeared all at once, right? The sort of deterritorializing, but re-territorialization, the sort of the production of neo-territorialities on the basis of this movement, generalized movement of decoding, it being like the heart of this new thing that can't have appeared all at once. It's this kind of double movement or tension. Would either of you be able to maybe articulate this kind of distinction between the synchronic movement and the diachronic for me we're kind of like paraphrasing it yeah right because you know as gil said it comes in a flash i think nietzsche says they they come like lightning right the founders of the state the blonde beasts of prey and he has all kinds of interesting ways of describing them and they're they're kind of running with that too in the urshad hypothesis where it's like it's almost as though every time archaeologists dig deeper and find an older state there's one beneath it right it's like states all the way down even though theoretically at least that that's both impossible and yet seemingly incontestable, right? There, there is this kind of paradox there. That's the synchronic aspect. And the diachronic, you know, as, as Gil was kind of pointing out, 
even though all the conditions were there, perhaps, you know, even further back than Rome, but definitely not just in Rome and right. in, uh, in China. I mean, I think in we've had this discussion, too, in the libidal economy series, right, where Leotard kind of goes through the same questions about Taoist erotics. Well, uh, but also why why in China in like the 14th century didn't capitalism come up? And it's like it's at a certain point they got enough silver out of the mines and they paused. You know, it wasn't just this movement towards the axiomatic whereby capital stops being where financial capital, merchant capital stops being kind of just immersed back into the old body, into the despotic machine and kind of and kind of encased it and and kind of cordoned off and and whereby it becomes filiative capital, right? Where capital starts to starts to beget itself. And uh, do you have anything to add to that, that Gil, about this diachronic and synchronic yeah. distinction? Yeah, I, you know, I'm a history of philosophy person. Like when I think of the synchronic stuff, the kind of example that comes to mind for me and which helps make sense of it is like some of the weird origins paradoxes that you get like in Rousseau, mm -hmm. the origin of, he asked this question about the origin of language, right? Yes. Like on the one hand, it seems like it would be necessary in order for language to have developed for there to already have been a community of people so that they'd be able to develop language amongst themselves. But on the other hand, it also doesn't seem like it would have been possible to have a community yes. without there already having a language amongst them in some way, right? And so this is the same sort of state all the way down problem. Right. It seems as though like it presupposes its own conditions, but also is what makes those conditions possible. And that's sort of, that's what I think of with the synchronic sort of flash appearance moment. And yeah, this is what they say about the state, right? And it's, they're following class trends, right? Like the interesting question with capitalism is, is it's as though these previous modes of social organization were trying to ward it off yeah. always, you know, there's something about it being ever there on the, on the horizon. What are the state mechanisms? What are the territorial mechanisms by which to prevent capital from becoming the self-moving substance, as right. Marx describes it, where it begins yeah, it, itself? That's a good point to bring this question yeah, of I, capitalism the question haunting. Being, when does desire become truly machinic, I suppose? Is that, when, is that the dawn of capitalism, I suppose? Well, they have that interesting quote about it's, I believe this is when they talk about, and I know we're kind of just looking ahead a little bit, when they talk about the breakdown of the old codes into the axiomatic, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but they also talk about knowledge capital, right? right. And, the, and the technological flows of code, which we can obviously, you know, in, in our day think of, they say data processing, but we think of obviously computer codes and things like that. When they talk about, it's no longer men who are the parts of this mega machine, but now men are adjacent to the, to the machines. They kind of make this seemingly controversial statement this is why it's truly under capitalism that we can say that capitalism begets machines even though you know they mean that in a in a kind of provocative way i think in that context and that's why they they link it to machinic surplus value right, right and they right, link yeah, the worker exactly. and the, they link the worker and the technician kind of together under the conditions of being remunerated under wage salaries versus the financial capital that kind of you know, in this weird mutant flow hollows out a debt to its right. to itself, you know, precisely for... yeah. how money is created via debt. Right. So like at the what the Federal Reserve or any central bank, they sort of make an entry on one side of the ledger, you know, negative one hundred thousand dollars. And on the opposite side, the plus hundred thousand dollars is the loan that goes out. Right. And so they've effectively generated that entire positive notion of currency or value 
out of thin air. Yeah, they yeah. pay the, they pay yeah. themselves back. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm hoping that we can talk about specifically this concept of machinic surplus value because it's mm -hmm. one that I struggle with. Yeah, but it's as though to, the other way to put it, like self moving substance, or like you know why didn't this happen in China where like they extract out of the silver mines up to a certain point and then stop. The other thing that they continually say about capital, and this is Marx's insight too, right? Like there is like a decoupling or disarticulation of production from even consumption as being its its end, right? right. Like use yeah. value falls away in the sort of like orgiastic self-production of surplus or surplus and exchange value for itself, the valorization of capital in relation to which everything else becomes totally subordinate and ancillary subsidiary. There were studies I was reading about this in a totally different context just recently. Um, some uh, socialist historians were talking about looking at the development of agrarian production in early 20th century Russia. And like you get this sort of expansion amongst these like small landowning farmers up to a certain point where like, you know, they're able then to satisfy their needs and desires. And then the expansion stops. There's not this sort of ceaseless accumulative drive or expansion right. for its own sake, which seems like absolutely characteristic of capitalism, right? This is totally unmoored from anything like the satisfaction of desire at the same time that it seems like, oh, isn't this like desiring for itself in a weird way? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is actually like Stirner's sort of critique of critique of ideology, honestly, or I don't even know exactly how to describe it, but he is, I think, recognizing that this sort of year that yeah this production for production's sake or i guess reproduction for reproduction's sake is like the this sort of imminent logic of capitalism and and we're sort of all thralls to it in mm. a sense yeah yeah caught what Marx called between, ex expanded yeah caught in the double bind yeah exactly like in the the circuits of expanded reproduction this is like the stuff that Marx teaches in part seven of Capital One, right? Even simple reproduction is already expanded reproduction. And that's in, in fact a limitless, endless process, alongside which we become simple, like appendages of capital's mm -hmm. movement. One question or thing I wanted to bring up relative to machinic surplus would be, I guess, thinking about this in the sense of the way that you look at something like potlatch as a methodology in a lot of instances of preventing surplus accumulation and sort of maintaining mm. this egalitarian, I've described it as like keeping the libidinal band from sort of overheating and like creating mm. conflict or so forth. But I feel like, yeah, that's sort of tied to this, I guess, deterritorialized flow of capital and the surplus too. Like there's a, there's a connection I feel like there because until you have that, it's that surplus, I feel like that has some type of mechanistic or like that has some kind of impact in terms of how this capitalism comes on developmentally pre-capitalist societies warding that off, right? They try to eliminate surplus, the needless or wanton destruction of property or whatever gifts during the potlatch, for example, as a way to eliminate that surplus flow. But I don't, I can't quite make those, I can't quite draw the connection. I kind of see like a little rough relationship. He ties to similar stuff too, right? In like his like analyses of religious festivity mm -hmm. and like the ecstasy of, of, yeah, of like festival and this like excessive, he talks about like, you know, there being, I mean, when in, to lose in Guattari's language, like something like an accumulative libidinal charge that requires periodic discharge, right? right? It's as though there's an, a recognition at some level that like, we shouldn't allow this to actually accumulate too much, right? This is going to be dangerous. And yeah, Bataille says something like, yeah, if we don't figure this problem out, it's just going to be total war and we're all going to die. And I, and I think sometimes that he was right about that. This is the interesting thing about what we're talking about here, which is what Deleuze and Guattari tried to define as 
for the primitive territorial machine as this development of a surplus value of code. And they try Mm -hmm. to talk about how that is, they even say that it corresponds to Moses' celebrated formula, the spirit of the thing given or the force of circumstance that requires that gifts be reciprocated with interest, being territorial signs of desire and power and principles of abundance in the fructification of wealth. I think that that's kind of what we're talking about here is that, you know, the gift burns a hole in your pocket and gets more intense and you have to pass it on or pass it back with the counter gift in this And what seems to be in the surplus value of code seems to be accumulating is prestige among these gifts and counter gifts. And with the introduction- Symbolic value. Yeah, symbolic value, right? I mean, that's, since we've been, we've had Bojiar on the brain for a long time, that's that's kind of how we'd say it. But, you know, it seems like with the introduction of the abstract equivalent of money, they have, I forget, was it the Teve economy they talk about? I I don't want to have the- Yeah, the- with the Teve economy, when that's just an example they use in, in these sections, when money is introduced as an abstract equivalent, these different kind of sectors that are semi-autonomous, even if also related with prestige goods, women, sort of use value commodities, not even commodities, but just these basic goods. When money is introduced as equivalent, it's as though the codes have to break down because you start with money, you can start with money, you can end with money. And so the cycle can never come to a halt. The stock can never be reformed, you know, within a kind of local uh, measure. That's kind of one of the first ways they try to, or one of the, I guess, one of the simplest ways they try to articulate this notion of an axiomatic, which is different from the codes. It And in this sense, it, it's money that gets money. It's money as the abstract general equivalent that I think shows, gives the lie to the to the previous forms that we're talking about, like in Moses' formula of gifts and counter gifts, where it's not about an equivalent, right? There is no equivalent. Yeah, that's, that's even right. how exactly. Moses describes it. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. And so this, this even goes back to an example that David Graeber used in the book Debt, where he's talking about, I want to say that it's these Celtic tribes would basically women were sort of a currency. They would exchange something back to the family that is giving away the bride. And that was because there's no possible way to replace the daughter, the bride that's being given away. But it's like the symbol, like we said, yeah, it goes back to symbolic exchange, right? It, there's not an equivalency. There's not a general equivalency. There is a rep- recognition of difference, I guess, perhaps. It's the analysis they give of the affiliation and alliance, right? That the first, what is it? The, the first preferential marriage is the aunt's daughter. But even Wait, that's can like- we like just for my sake, uh, can yeah. you like explain these terms, alliance and affiliation, it seems like that's doing like a lot of work in the kind of analysis they're elaborating. And I'm- Yeah. See, it's interesting, right? Because the whole chapter kind of builds on these terms. And so when they talk about financial flows and commodity flows, whatever, as, as no longer being dominated by alliance in the old pores of the, the bourgeoisie, but becoming affiliative capital, right? Or, or they even call it industrial capital where value is giving birth to itself, kind of as you were describing with, even with the state and the, and the, uh, the what was it? The self-movement of substance? Um, yeah, value as self-moving substance. Yeah. yeah. So the way I read it and the, the most general ways of defining it, even though they don't define it this way is, you know, filiation is more or less 
thought of in terms of it becomes thought of in terms of descent, but it is about it is sort of about matrilineal patrilineal genealogies, right? It has a genealogical aspect, whereas alliance is actually negotiated by men. They even call it a primary homosexuality. It's negotiated by these local groups of men who are arranging the marriages in order to form bonds like among families. So in a sense, they talk about, for example, affiliation in terms of the formations of stock versus like alliances as the formation of these mobile debts. And so it's whenever, whenever like, but it's not that you can deduce alliance from affiliation, right? You can't. And I always think about, I don't know, have you guys, you guys have seen Game of Thrones, right? So much of this can become more concrete out of the abstract. If you just think about all the different negotiations that are going on between families. Same thing in Dune as well. Yeah. It's all yeah, dedicated so, on the exchange of yeah, affiliation. And I think that, well, Alliance rather, sorry. Right. Yeah. And, and I guess I just think that, um, you know, with, with affiliation in the tribes that like Levi Strauss is looking at, there will be like, say a local tribe and they will be, they'll be broken off into two groups. Let's say there'll be a and B and, as Coop was talking about with, what was it? You say it was, was it Irish? Was it Gaelic? Celtic tribesmen. The yeah. Celtic tribes negotiating wives with these two groups. It all comes down to negotiating for you either. The way they say it is you, you can't marry your mother because the affiliation has to extend. Right. And you can't, you can't marry your sister because you have to, you have to give your sister out. Right. And right. so it's this, it's this negotiation going on, this, this kind of uh this is why incest is becomes prohibited is because it becomes this like local strategy of groups. And this is why it's, it's the maternal uncle who is owed gifts because it's his um, basically the, fa- the fact that he should be the one to marry the mother. Right. But he can't do that. I mean, it's, it's this inverse Hamlet thing that they're going on. I'm, I'm using all these different ways of going from just a, uh, announcing i i, I should I like just define your, it your example of game of thrones is actually really good relative to yeah. relative to incest particularly not only because of like the relationship with jamie and cersei but an even better example going back is Aegon the conqueror who basically was the valerian family that conquers westeros right he marries his two sisters and their sister wives and basically it's a common practice of the targaryen dynasty to to keep like an incestuous in the books it's magically they don't want to dilute their their dragon powers or whatever but i think you can still see how that really applies to the example you gave in terms of these small groups kind of i don't know using that to their advantage so they say at some point that like capital really capitalism gets off the ground when like capital ceases to have like an alliance set of relations amongst its sort of constituent parts right industrial merchant and commercial and where instead it becomes affiliative. It becomes kind of centered on itself for in a, in a certain way, in which also allows it to appropriate everything else for itself. This new conjunction of productive forces aligned now on itself as, yeah, self-perpetuating and thereby self-expanding or something like this. I think the old machinery operates very much like the way this works in Dune in terms of, I guess, the exchange of women Something like, okay, so one of the major issues that set off the conflict in the first Dune novel is the Atreides and the Harkonnen sort of 
what is it? It's, it's like a feud, right? But the Bene Gesserit are manipulating. They're actually the ones that are doing the sort of homosexual selection in terms of like sexual selection in the background. And because this son, Paul, this male heir to the Duke was born, it really fucks up their plans because the Harkonnen <laughs> basically is already a male. So they can't create that affiliate, that uh, alliance, right? Yeah, the, ex- it's like the exchange just, is no longer possible. Precisely. And that sort yeah. of, I think that represents the sort of older alliance model of, of capital or whatever. And the sort of feudal time, I guess, or even you would say like mercantile almost is sort of how Dune operates. To add on to this, I found some of my notes. They kind of define alliances as a continuing chain of debt relationships of an economic t- kind. So affiliation is administrative and hierarchical, and it's usually thought of in terms of kinship. Right, in terms of descent, whereas alliance is lateral, it's political and economic. Nice. Um, nice. And it says and expresses power insofar as it is not fused with the hierarchy and cannot be deduced from it. And the economy insofar as it is not identical with administration. Here's what's important, I think, for our discussion, where they say affiliation and alliance are like the two forms of a primitive capital, fixed capital or affiliate of stock and circulating capital or mobile blocks of debt. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's where they want to expand obviously it becomes different in the despotic uh machine right where the there's the exogamous uh despot who comes and and sort of rearranges all all of kinship under under him as like this kind of imminent unity of, of a god and he kind of that'd be like Aegon the conqueror right to westeros and gilgamesh or right yeah paul leto the second you know whatever whatever your reference william is. the conqueror yeah, so so the despot is that overcoating unity that that sort of I always talk about this in terms of Gilgamesh, and I've probably already said it on the on this podcast before, but I love how Gilgamesh, you know, one of our earliest epics starts where all the people of Europe come and they are complaining that Gilgamesh has prima nocte and he's fucking all their wives, and since he's two thirds god, he's obviously going to have the firstborn is going to be his because his semen is just like super. Uh, impregnable right so that's kind of the overcoding <laughs> where the all affiliations now descend from gilgamesh and and it fucks up the alliances it fucks up negotiating it's kind of this one last cry against the uh to ward off the state man it's really like that privatization of the individual and like the rise of the ego in a sense i feel like maybe like if you're looking at it historically speaking well, instead of the instead of the organs being privatized in capitalist society, they're no longer completely collective, but they become the organs of the despot, right? They become the organs of the state. That's kind of that one last cry of like, hey, leave us, leave us some collective organs that aren't, you know, overcoated. You know, what's great too is one of the things that runs throughout all of the analyses of the three different types of social machines that we get in this chapter is that they insist too that whatever's doing the work of being the full body is also at the same time an element of anti-production. And yet like the sort of weird, the sort of weird, not exactly, not quite paradoxical thing is that it's this element of anti-production, whatever it is, the full body of the earth and the territorial machine, the Mm -hmm. body of the despot and the despotic, and now finally capital in capitalism is this element of anti-production that appears to generate all of the production, right? The quasi-cause. Quasi cause. The language that they constantly use is like there being an apparent objective movement, right? Where like this is now the thing that stands up and says, I am what is causing all of this to happen at the same time that it is absolutely the element of anti production. So, yeah, at the same time, right? Like 
you know, in the despotic machine, like the God King says, this is all mine, but what is he doing? He's sitting around on a throne doing right. nothing. Right? right. And in capitalism, everything appears to be produced by capital. Yes. Right. Which that's is like, why it's you, affiliative. That's why it's, filiative. that's why it's affiliative. Yeah. That's why it's affiliative. Right. It's the thing that's apparently engendering everything. Mm -hmm. But of course, one of the other great contradictions of capitalism is that capital is not productive on its own. In fact, in fact, it is labor that is productive. And it's that sort of movement of appropriation that, I don't know, causes all the trouble, <laughs> if you like. Gil, I had a question because I've always struggled with this or I've always had this in the back of my mind because there's also a term that, that Laura Well uses and I don't think he's getting it straight from anti-Oedipus. I think, in fact, Deleuze and Guattari or Deleuze specifically is getting it. Is apparent objective movement, is this a, is this a term from Hegel or even before him? Is this a term that, that ever comes up or am I uh, projecting here? The specific formulation, I don't, no, off the okay. top of my head, but it's a very Hegelian and like even in a lot of ways like Marxist way of talking. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it, know, maybe it is a Marxist terminology then. Yeah, I could easily imagine this being language in capital, and I just not remembering exactly right what you get. For instance, is descriptions of. I mean, in Hegel, you'd look at like the doctrine of essence in mm -hmm. the second part of the science of logic, where you have this whole like discussion of shine or of appearance, right, and like things having to appear in a certain kind of way, and that both being true and also just appearance, like objectively mm, yeah. speaking, right? This is also what we get with, you know, so many of Marx's analyses. I think about this in terms of like standpoint theory too, like Nancy Hartsock has a really good piece, The Feminist Standpoint. She's building this idea of feminist standpoint epistemology on the model of Lukács actually in his mm -hmm. reading of the proletariat in Capital One. And you get this like description of the same situation from two perspectives, right? Where it is from the perspective of exchange or the sphere of circulation, everything's great. It's all above board, baby. Entering into voluntary exchanges with one another. I'm buying and selling my, I'm selling the commodity of my labor power at its fair price, i.e. the cost of its production, what it takes to produce and reproduce me as a worker and reproduce that commodity. And like, everything's good, right? Like, you know, this is what Marx says, right? Like the sphere of like equality, property, liberty, and Bentham, right? We're killing it. This is dope. But then from the perspective of the worker in the sphere of production, actually, it looks much different. It is coercion, it's force, it's violence, it's exploitation. And in a way, these are both true, but it's the sort of apparent, the apparent objectivity of the sphere right. of exchange that needs to be chipped away at, right? Like that's only a, a one-sided perspective. The Marxist sort of take is that the perspective of production is the truer, more adequate one. So we're kind of like taking up some concepts like this and reworking it to talk about, yeah, one of the peculiarities of capitalism is where does it locate its quasi-causal antibot or anti-productive full body and its capital itself? This thing that really only can expand or valorize, but is made to appear or makes itself to appear. It's interesting to try to think about where agency is located in this whole situation, right. right? But it is made to appear one way or another as though it is in fact doing the generation of everything other than itself, when really all it's doing is valorizing itself and subordinating everything to that. To its own reproduction. Yeah, expanded reproduction, exactly. Yeah. We've been doing um, cultural references to sort of illustrate points, but my favorite little representation in media of the non-productive body of the despot is actually in an, an early episode of Adventure Time where our protagonist finds this weird little kingdom and accidentally kills their king. And so they're like, well, you're the new king now. And they've got all these problems that he wants to solve. And they're like, that's not allowed. You can't do anything that messes up the, the code. And so he eventually replaces <laughs> it with like, replaces the king with a statue. And they're like, finally, we can do our, we can do the productive work and have our non-productive center at the core. Amazing. I think it's called the silent king. It's a really fun little episode. That's almost like the way the chief would act in the 
Yes. Like in the peer clusters examples and so forth. Even I think most as well. This thing about anti-production is interesting, right? Because they want to kind of say that, as Gil said earlier, right? Just the despot claims in this apparent objective movement to produce everything when he's just sitting on the throne. They want to say that with capital, when capital becomes the full body, now anti-production isn't this, isn't like, how do they say it? It's not this transcendent instance that's like outside and opposing production, limiting it and checking it. Like we said with, you know, China got all of its medieval China gets its silver and it's just on the mines. That's kind of this outside force of anti-production. And they even talk about it in terms of in the other two social machines, the previous ones, not necessarily evolutionarily, but in the sense of this book, anti-production is... And they even quote Balabar and Altusay here where they kind of say yeah. uh, it's extra economic. And they quote Marx too saying that like, you know, making the, the peasants work the land, it's always some extra economic force, right? Be it juridical or even, you know, uh, physical violence. But with capital as full body, anti-production becomes sort of imminent to the field of, it becomes co-present with production itself, right? And, and becomes... It comes firmly wedded to it in order to regulate its productivity and realize surplus value. They say this is the difference between the despotic bureaucracy and the capitalist bureaucracy, right? So I guess that what I found interesting was that they bring up anti-production the most when they're talking about knowledge capital, when they're talking about the technician and the scientist who they say as such, which I read as like statistically, they're not revolutionaries. In fact, they're the first to integrate and to be integrated. They're sort of the first to have their labor co-opted for these, these terrible ends, be it you know gadgets to nuclear bombs. But they say it this way. They say the, the capitalist effusion of anti-production within production at all levels of the process is alone capable of realizing capitalism's supreme goal, which is to produce lack in the large aggregates, to introduce lack where there's always too mm. much by affecting mm-hmm. the absorption of overabundant resources. On the other hand, it alone doubles the capital and the flow of knowledge with a capital and an equivalent flow of stupidity. And the French <laughs> word there is actually connery, which is- which is Oh, interesting. Uh, the word we have there is, it's actually linguistically related to the word for country, which is a fun word for like bullshit. So there's a flow of knowledge and then there's a equivalent flow of bullshit that affects an absorption and a realization and that ensures the integration of groups and individuals into the system. And I think that that's kind of part of this question of what the technological flows of code are. It's part of these two flows, the flows of knowledge, information training in the axiomatic and this flow of bullshit that is kind of forcing statistically, again, science and scientists and technicians into into making bullshit, making, yeah. making bullshit. Yeah, making bullshit, right? yeah. yeah. Making literally just more bullshit. Yeah. Just more yeah, bullshit. Yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't know that it wasn't, uh, that it was Connery. I kind of assumed that it was Bétis. I did after, too. I did because too. that's like, there's a whole thing in Difference and Repetition mm-hmm. where Deleuze is like talking about transcendental stupidity and there it's Bétis. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's that's cool. I like, bullshit works really nicely for capturing yeah, it's, this, it's, I think. It's bullshit. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, I think stupidity is only chosen here because it, it juxtaposes against knowledge, knowledge right? Those, right, those, for sure. I think there's more dark humor here and there's more impact conceptually if we think about that. It's not that scientists are 
creating stupidity. Although if we analogize and, and extrapolate, we can get to what we're talking about. But I mean, literally just just creating more bullshit. And sometimes <laughs> Guattari even talks like this, like with uh, the cold open that Coop read that accelerate the process. We haven't seen anything yet. Sometimes Guattari writes where he's like, yeah, we're just we need more fucking gadgets. We need more widgets, more, more <laughs> bullshit. We need more bullshit because it it's just it's almost like pushing anti-production to this point right. where it perhaps can help lead capitalism to its self-critique that they announce right at the kind of at the beginning of chapter three. So it's like breaking from a, I guess, like a thermodynamic model of this relative to the example I have about building muscle, right? So to like build muscle, you have to tear down the muscle fibers, introducing a stress there, but like also the body produces, I guess, well, I don't even know if this is technically true, but right. There's like when the muscle gets tired, right. That's some type of, you know, internal limit on the, on the amount of work that it can produce so that the muscle isn't obliterated kind of a similar fashion to the libidinal band sort of overheating and bursting. Yeah. Lactic acid. And then it, and then it, those micro tears allow it to regrow. Is that like the anti-production would be the lactic acid, but it sounds like, no, it sounds like that's maybe how the old model would work in terms of the potlatch is like the way this lactic acid would absorb or slow down the expansion of the muscle before it erupts into violence or destruction or death. I think your analogy works if the body we're talking about could literally expand indefinitely. What is this immersion of anti-production within production, if not the movement of what they're calling the axiomatic, which is this you know, capitalism is always coming up to its interior limit, but it keeps right. kind of keeps kind of widening them ever in this global <laughs> planetary movement. And then it's got even though it has in a certain sense, schizophrenia has its exterior limit. It's always warding that off. Right. Because that breaks through the wall and that kind of defeats the profit motive. So yeah. it's this I think that your analogy works a little bit. Just the human body is too small. It has to be like this cosmic right. full body. True. But I think in the sense of the way that the internal limit is displaced, this example has a lot more currency and relevance in the way that it's like crises being imminent to capitalism. And those crises are what allows for expansion. So it's like taking two steps back, but three steps forward. And so like, you know, you put the muscle under stress by progressive overload. So more and more stress on the muscle tissue creates micro tears those micro tears heal. So there's a sort of that internal limit grows and grows. And you can kind of build that. Of course, like Taylor says, eventually you do run into a certain hard limit in terms of the Mm. physical body. But I think it's a good metaphor or example of the way that these internal limits can be displaced. And I think really, when you get to the heart of the matter, it is the same process, because what are we really talking about? We're talking about a muscle has a capacity to do what? To produce, to, to labor, to produce labor power. To produce potential energy or whatever, or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so like crises economically are opportunities then for the displacement of the internal limit, both that are then recuperated in newly appropriated or accumulated capital on the one hand, and on the other pole, right, the expansion of a dispossessed larger right. proletariat, planetary-wide, what Marx called like the industrial reserve army. Yeah. I like the stuff that they do talking about this actually in these chapters, thinking about center and periphery, thinking about, you know, I have this, I have a lot of these conversations I teach like business ethics classes and like, you know, sometimes, you mm-hmm. know, you get, you know, and we all also, I mean, outside of that, we all like know people who look around and they're like, I don't know, this isn't that bad, you know? And it's like, yeah, you are sure living in the imperial core, my guy. I'm sorry to tell you that. In fact, <laughs> like the misery 
and servitude and drudgery of industrial production hasn't actually gone away just because we're living on the other side of the deindustrialization process, right? And they're talking about that actually happening already here. What it exports is affiliative capital to create new centers of production in places where, yeah, you know, you have conditions for the maximal exploitation of labor. But then not only, and, so, not only yeah. labor, but environment as well, I think. And yeah, of course. Yeah, I, like it's it's not only the physical and emotional stress, it's the environmental and the political stress are all exported to other places to allow the you know inter- imperial core to not again it's a ways of manipulating energies right manipulating the flow of desire to keep the flows from like coming back and like destroying capital itself right right which again we're running into limits <laughs> actually <laughs> this turns out not to have been a it only theoretically uh potentially endless process. If you read the IPCC report that came out this past week, then you, like me, had a panic attack. Do you want to fill us in or is it too, uh, is it too distressing? Oh, just, you know, scientists are just saying that like the, we need to reach peak emissions by 2025 if we're going to avoid reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and emissions are so higher fucked. every year. So we're fucked. Oh, kind we're, of. Yeah, you know. yeah, we are. We're pretty no, deeply fucked. No one um, has even really grasped how completely fucked we are in, in my in my only opinion. yeah not to only, be a doomer but only space force like and i don't even bezos I don't even, and musk can can take us well off yeah this i mean and like this is the, export it even further to the periphery totally like and like i said like i had a minor panic attack this week on wednesday about a thousand scientists associated with this group called scientist rebellion some of whom were involved in the drafting of the ipcc report who said that the language of it was actually watered down in order for it to get through committee that it's mm-hmm. actually worse than it yeah. sounds even did a bunch of like direct action and so like on wednesday four scientists in los angeles chained themselves to the front doors of jp yes. morgan chase yes okay um and they did that specifically because they identified political, economically, JP Morgan Chase is like the most significant investor in the construction of new fossil infrastructure projects that are happening right now. Which, by the way, like if you build a coal plant, it doesn't actually start turning a profit until like after 30 years of continuous. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So like it's suicidal on a planetary scale to be building any of this stuff at the moment. And like over 100 LAPD, you know, in SWAT gear were brought in to arrest these four, like, you know, nerds was very little physical threat to anybody and that got like no media coverage but everyone was looking at the wow space space force we got like you know new star travels this is absurd bullshit everywhere anti-production yeah yeah. (laughs) well yeah because they talk about the death drive elusively here although they talk about it much more throughout the book it would be easy to say that oh you know capitalism puts puts us on this death drive to ruin the environment and whatever but you know when freud talks about the death drive and beyond the pleasure principle you know, he's talking about an organism not short-circuiting its own imminent ways of dying. So there's a certain sense in which, like, if, let's just say, theoretically, the Earth as an organism is going to die in its own imminent way, then it shouldn't come from, we're not really allowing the Earth to die in, in its own manner. We're kind of imposing a transcendent imminent unity whatever anyway we uh, are but cap more profoundly capitalist yeah right well well yeah and uh i hate to talk about our implication in capitalism but yeah well for sure well there's a line here that i actually quite liked thinking about Uh, again like the kind of coercive character of capitalist relations of production and exchange it's on page 254 where they say this ties together a bunch of the things that we've just been talking about they write quote the bourgeois field of imminence as delimited by the conjunction of the decoded flows the negation of any transcendence or conjunct or exterior limit and the effusion of anti-production inside production itself 
institutes an unrivaled slavery and unprecedented subjugation. There are no longer even any masters, but only slaves commanding other slaves. There is no longer any need to burden the animal from the outside. It shoulders its own burden. You get your good like Nietzschean beast of burden imagery here. And they even say a little farther down, they're like, yeah, in one way, there is a ruling class and a ruled class. But on the other hand, the constraints of competitive marketplaces, for instance, mean that like people in the ruling class are forced to do what they do as well, right? There's like a kind of universal coercion as we become appendages or organs of this, the monstrous thing, right? The great quote from Marx to cap off that, that paragraph, right? Uh, the capitalist is like the miser, but it's not, instead of it being an idiosyncrasy, it, it's actually a part of the social mechanism. And that's, that's the just, distinction. Just another, yeah, just another wheel, just another cog. Right. What do they mean when they talk about classes as the, what was it, the opposites or mirrors? The of, negative. The negative. Of mm. The negative and, of ranks, castes. Because I'm interested. The I'm negative interested, of castes and statuses. I'm interested in pursuing this line of thought relative to the bourgeois being the revolutionary class as well that I think sort of comes along after this aspect of the discussion. They kind of say that the bourgeoisie is, is the only class because of this definition, right? The classes are the negative of castes and statuses, just as kind of the axiomatic is the negative of, of codes or uh, capitalism is the negative of all other societies. And I think that I read it as, I'm not sure necessarily if they believe it as strongly or if this is as much of a declarative statement as, as someone like Ray Brazier made it out <laughs> yeah. to be in his, right. in his essay on the inhuman, because they do say elsewhere, obviously talking about there could be axioms for the proletarian class, et cetera. It's, I, I think well, from that, the point of view of capital, I think, yes, a la, a la Marx is what they're talking about, I think, is what I, my impression. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, from, the they're, po- from the point of view of the historical development of capital, there's only one class that decodes the flow or like is decoded, which would be the bourgeois, which kind of makes sense, right? Because if capitalism is the decoding of flows combined with, I forget what the other <laughs> element is, but like, whatever that composition is. Decoded flows of money and decoded flows of labor, right? That's the conjunction. And I guess before handing it off to Gil, I would say, you know, one in a thousand plateaus, they kind of move their analysis of micropolitics to classes and masses. So Mm. even there, they're not necessarily tied to this. But also, as we kind of talk pre-gaming, they want to try to distinguish, and maybe this is where classes and masses can be fitted onto this book too. They want to distinguish between the pre-conscious class interests and sort of unconscious investments of desire. Yeah. And so I guess we've kind of already laid it out, right? It's insofar as capitalism is the the nightmare and the negative of all other social machines, this ironic retrospective history of class struggle, then you could say this, that the decoding class, there's one class. I mean, if you look at like historically the French Revolution, right, would sort of be a historical example of the bourgeois being the decoded class or the decoding class. Yeah, the bourgeois American Revol- Revolution. American Revolution too, to be mm-hmm. even more direct, I think it would be. <laughs> yeah, because that really sets things off, and the way that they look at America and the westward expansion of America and etc. Manifest <laughs> Destiny and how that all yeah. applies with deterritorialization and reterritorialization. Yeah. Also As regards, of, yeah. It's some, I don't know. It's a way for capital. It could continuously expand to like in displacing that 
internal limit of the United States. Like you can see that sort of physical, like it's almost the way to the motion that plants have when they grow, right? Like if you've ever seen like sped up video of plants, right? They kind of, they have this weird kind of like wavering when they expand, you know what I mean? They do move as such, but anyways. Yeah, absolutely. I was struck thinking about this class question. This is really interesting. They sometimes seem to say that like, yeah, is it, they're adopting the perspective of capital or the bourgeoisie from which they say that that's the only class. On the other hand, like there's often this claim in like the Marxist tradition that like, no, the only universal class is the proletariat, right? And this is a kind of counterintuitive yeah. claim that they're making here if you're familiar with that like line of thought. But then I also like was really struck by the way that they cite Sartre in the Critique of Dialectical Reason yeah. a little bit later, where like the problem maybe with thinking about class, classes and class struggle in this way is that, you know, Sartre writes that there isn't class spontaneity at all. There's just serialized members of, again, a pre-conscious, the interested organization or mass, I guess we would want to say. And then there are processes of like what Sartre calls groups infusion, which like is always tactical, local, and involves the sort of orientation of the forces available to subjects in a group that is only a kind of ephemeral unity. This yeah. might be the reason why they're like skeptical of classes. Yeah, makes sense um, because they were definitely both very big Sartre heads. They were and they were because they do take in the task earlier in the book right. for beginning critique of the same book, critique of dialogue for reason with scarcity instead of beginning with inscription as yeah. they do. Just to piggyback off of the, the Sartre which is really on like two pages later from what we just read, the pre-conscious interest versus the, the sort of collective unconscious desires or investments. They also align it on this molar molecular kind of uh, division, right? That class interest would be this kind of statistical molar aggregate, which again, a lot is why they bring up the serialized versus the group's infusion. What I found interesting was this notion that, and I'm glad that the translators provide a footnote, there's this notion about the opposition between the class. When they talk about the theoretical opposition, it's not between two classes, right? And they say it's obviously because class is negative of caste and statuses. They say the opposition between the class and those who are outside the class, which they give the, the translator's note that it's the word they're using in French for class is outcast and outlaw. So I, mm. I thought it was this interesting notion of an outclass. And maybe that's particularly this, maybe then they're not necessarily letting go of what, what you just brought up, Gil, about the only revolutionary class is, is obviously the proletarian. So maybe that's part of, it's maybe not necessarily a rejection of Marx, but this interesting theoretical kind of reconceptualization within yeah, their, yeah, yeah. their parameters. Yeah, totally. And again, like thinking about, you know, on the one hand, of course, the proletariat could be the only revolutionary class, but also like how many reactionary how many reactionary proles are there? You know, like this is why like the the Sartre mm -hmm. reference is important. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it were the case that the interest, the pre-conscious interest of this proletarian class would be revolutionary, well, for the most part, what we are dealing with is serialization and a desire that is turned against its own interest. This is why you need something like a political project. And then like the or class, right? The, the outlaw outclass, like this is what I think they're going to later thematize as like becoming revolutionary in a thousand plateaus, which is just not a given. It's not a given due to social positions, certainly, Absolutely. Um, but involves, 
yeah, like they said, the servants of the machine and those who sabotage it, right? The, the people who are breaking down, you know, the, the cogs can sometimes sabotage the machine. And that's not a given at all. This right. is a problem to be solved in a certain sense. Yeah, it is, it is interesting, too, that in this sense, it comes back to the interior limits that capitalism is increasingly trying to export and, and expand and the sort of absolute exterior limits of schizophrenia, which is why they kind of even bring up the difference between it's between the capitalists or the bourgeoisie and the schizos and their basic mm. intimacy at the level of decoding and their basic antagonism at the level of the axiomatic, which I find interesting, right? This kind of gets us back to uh, one of the questions you had earlier, Gil, just to kind of jump we can always circle back, but this question of machinic surplus value, because they even say, you know, that the sort of the theory of surplus value has to be corrected, you know, blah, 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 towards machinic surplus value. But instead of like going through the, the sort of abstract steps that they lay out, one of the things, and I know Cooper's interested in it, is their example of when they give an example of anti-production and the sort of technological flows of code, they turn to Gregory Bateson. And it is this very interesting case. And we can kind of work through it in detail, right? I, I don't have the page, but they, they kind of say like- 236. Bateson. Yeah. Okay. So this is the interesting. Like, so Bateson first starts, it's not like they totally reject him here, even though they kind of end with this ironic and almost sad note, <laughs> you know, because they, he's like the obviously, good example the, of the double bind. Yeah, well, and he not to spoil. He formulated well. He formulated the double bind, okay. and uh, in order to theorize schizophrenia. But first, he he's like doing ethnographic, ethnological interpretations of like Balinese culture. They get the notion of plateau from him, which furnishes the next title of their book. So he starts with they say he starts as an ethologist, following the primitive codes and the savage flows. He turns to schizophrenia with the double bind, as Cooper just said, and these these more decoded flows, and then. He wants to keep breaking through that wall and he turns to dolphin language. But where does it end back up where it's like, but where does the dolphin flux end? If not the basic <laughs> research projects of the American army, which brings us back to preparation for war and to the absorption of surplus value. And then on the next page is, is what I was reading. The definition of surplus value must be modified. But I, I wanted to talk maybe a little bit about this, this example, I guess, right, of this trajectory they're they're building with Bateson. What do you guys think about that? Neo-Posadism. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm not sure to be quite honest. Well you were you were interested other than like I guess it sort of goes to like this double bind in the sense that no matter what you're gonna sort of as an individual or subject or whatever the fuck you're gonna bump into the internal limits of capitalism that sort of it's almost like trying it's to the flow find... of knowledge and the flow of bullshit, right? Yeah. I mean... Or like trying to hit the end of the rainbow in a certain sense. It's like you're never you're like you, it's totally. constantly going to displace its limit and be able to create an axiomatic for even the something as bizarre as dolphin language or something as deterritorialized or whatever as those yeah. of speech. Yeah, that's that's actually super helpful. This is maybe why they revise Contraland, their statement, their prognostic towards the end of the book. Not because they've become conservative, Nick, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but because, you know, already here in this analysis, they're recognizing quite clearly. In fact, it's kind of the core of their conception of capitalist axiomatic as a distinctive social logic that deterritorialization secures nothing, right? There's always 
at least the possibility of a re-territorialization of whatever is decoded, such that like, yeah, pursuing ever further deterritorialization like might open up new avenues for, I don't know, understanding or social organization or the satisfaction of desire. Or markets. Um, but it's also but also markets, right? It's also pre- potentially creating a site for new value extraction, a new locus of commodity production or of a flow. Yeah, there could be an axiomatic for for dolphin language. There could be even an axiomatic for little old us in our and oh, yeah. Oedipals. Oh, for sure. Totally I'm trying to fully axiomatized uh, over here. Yeah. By the way, visit my uh, my podcast's Patreon if you'd like to <laughs> allow me to extract some uh, exactly. surplus value. You know. God damn it. Even <laughs> yeah. So even in our detail, like even in our discussions of even in this podcast, is sort of trapped within the double bind of of capitalism. Yeah, we're this is like surplus value. Yeah, well, this is like the question, right? Like, given this sort of analysis, it's a little bit difficult to know what to do. Clearly, a regression to a more despotic regime of like overcoding is let's just rule that out as not yeah, what we would precisely. like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but sorry, also, sorry, like, Baudrillard, we're not going to do it. Not doing it. Not interested. But also, like you know, there's no simple answers on the side of deterritorialization either. Agreed. In as much yeah. as like that's the mechanism by which capital displaces its limit, its interior limit, right? And also, we don't don't seem to want to go in the direction of the absolute limit or the exterior limit. Uh, the absolute limit that is like collapse into schizoid dissociation is also not a particularly attractive prospect for me, at least. I don't know if you all have different right. yeah. feelings about that. Or our immediate death, as Baudrillard would suggest. <laughs> also not an exciting thing Like becoming thing for a me. terrorist or whatever, uh, as yeah. the only sort of praxis left to us to sort right. of... Kind of it requires like- <laughs> it requires a, a more subtle it requires a more subtle response than like you know just deterritorializing it'll work because yeah look what happens you get Bateson's deterritorializing dolphin language and next thing you know you're back with the military industrial complex whoops it's dangerous it's like and a it- fucking horseshoe yeah it's like horseshoe <laughs> theory for real that is the double bind caught between two poles I do think it's interesting that they're able to bring all of this wildness all of this. Uh, to wrap these 10 sections of the development of the different types of representation, you know, the, the primitive, primitive territorial representation, barbarian, despotic representation, capitalist representation, and work all the way up through the sort of history of coding flows, of overcoding flows, decoding flows. And they sort of end section 10 by saying the general theory of society is a generalized theory of flows and they they're able to come back to oedipus right because for a while there we may have forgotten that oedipus <laughs> was lurking but what's the name it, of this book what are we yeah, talking exactly about? <laughs> is it capitalism uh, <laughs> right yeah, 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 yeah um so what i think is interesting because just to start to get us to wrap up because i know we won't be able to say as much as we need to and we've already i mean cooper and i have already been talking about oedipus we've been beating it like a dead horse which in a certain sense it is careful you're gonna give me uh, i'm gonna have an episode i'm gonna go catatonic (laughs) (laughs) they beat that horse one more time i swear to god they talk about how in the primitive territory oedipus is this empty displaced limit right it's not occupied it's empty unoccupied limit i think is is the way they talk about it because you know with incest in the primitive machine you either have persons but not names or you have the names but they don't stick to their person right like it's always this limit Mm. this this as they say this shallow slandered stream you can never occupy it and then 
with the despot, he becomes kind of he symbolically occupies it, but it's still not still not able to be lived per se. It's only with it's only with with capitalism that now Oedipus becomes kind of shifts to the imaginary and it becomes lived and mm. it becomes we come to occupy it in our own little and our own little Kodak snap, right? Our own, the narcissistic ego is identical with the Oedipal subject. So it's like how we become little egos that have our little corner of the world, how the limit becomes internalized, right? Um, all this talk about limits and external limits and, in, and internal limits of capitalism, it all comes back to help shed light on Oedipus. So I wonder what you guys think about just this, this kind of last section, if there was some stuff that, maybe tied some things together for you or, you know, some things that stood out, man, honestly, like my last really interesting question I wanted to bring up is not quite related, but I just want to raise it before I forget would be that I don't understand where the fuck surplus is being generated at all was one of the big questions that I was kind of like not able to, to like square that loop. But anyways, in terms of affiliative capital, in terms of, no, just like in general, like where the fuck is the surplus value generated? I'm like where, because like they, they yeah. give this example about how the, you know, the, the MCM formula, right? So money, capital money, and about like purchasing, you take your $100 to purchase $100 of something, and then you take that commodity and sell that for $110. But that's still, I, I couldn't, I'm still trying to, I can't wrap my brain around where the surplus comes from. So I can half answer this question because I'm also stuck on this as well in the sort of classic articulation of this Marxist solution to the problem of the origin of surplus value is like chapter six of Capital One, where the relevant thing is that the value of labor power is not identical to the value that labor power produces mm -hmm. in a particular, you know, for, in a particular right. period of time, right? Yeah. So that like, and in Marxist language, that's variable capital is like, you know, the, the actual living labor being done, remunerated with a wage. So, you know, I'm paid $100 for my day's work, but I make $110, I make $150, $200 worth of product in my working day. So that's the origin of the surplus value on the one hand. This is going to open onto Marx's later analyses of absolute and relative surplus value. Increasing the degree of productivity of labor becomes an imperative of capital because the more my labor is productive, the more value I'll generate. And then the more surplus falls to the capitalist for the same amount of wage needing to be paid. And so this like satisfies all of the conditions of the economic problem where we are exchanging equivalents for equivalents. No one's getting swindled in that respect. But on the other hand, because of the sort of specific form of the wage relation, I'm as a worker able to generate more value than I'm paid. That's where surplus is coming from on the one hand. But then I don't understand how machinic surplus value works, which is there, I think, break with that sort of classic Marxist story. Right. Right. Be because the claim there is like, you got constant capital, right? Your means of production, you know, your tools, your raw materials, your instruments of labor, that doesn't produce anything. That's just stuff that people use, workers actually put to work in the production process. And it makes your labor more productive, but the surplus is always coming from the labor, right? right. From the worker. Correct. And then they say, but there's also, this is 232, yeah, they, they've got this line here. Machines too, it's in scare quotes, work, 
or produce value, and they've always worked. And they work more and more in proportion to man, who thus ceases to be a constituent part of the production process in order to become adjacent to it. Hence, there is a machinic surplus value produced by constant capital, which develops along with automation and productivity, and which cannot be explained by factors that counteract the falling tendency, increasing intensity of exploitation of human labor. So we kind of like hold this all together by the time we get to 237 to be like, yes, there is still the exploitation of labor. And here we have that core periphery discussion, right? Like we're moving mm-hmm. yeah. that exploitation of human labor to the periphery, to the global South, the third world, whatever we'd want to call it. But also there is a process of extracting machinic surplus value on the basis of an axiomatic of the flows of scientific and technical code in the core areas of the center. So like, I don't know, I'm, I'm still a little unclear on how machinic surplus value works. How does constant capital produce surplus value? I don't know. Do you all have a kind of sense for this? This is something that I'm not sure I understand at this point. Yeah, I mean, the way that I read it was that, you know, there's this, how do they call it? I think it's back in fucking uh, section nine. There's this, the simulation going on. It's between, between like finance capital and, and wages. And it's as though you're you're measuring, they're two different. It's almost like money is being used. It's a weird like duality within money to be able to, operate. I, well, I, I don't know look, much, but I I don't know, like thinking about this in terms of money creation, right? Like I mentioned earlier that, you know, whenever currency is generated by debt, right? The Federal Reserve marks an entry to create the money. But I'm wondering too, like, if I'm not mistaken as well, like the Federal Reserve also, you might have to check me. I'm not sure if this is hundred percent true, but I believe that they lend out more money that can possibly ever be paid back. And that's how crises are imminent to capital because of that like there's it's sort of like which is weird because i don't understand how surplus plays into that as well because it's almost like musical chairs in terms of like the money is kind of flowing and then there's crisis and we all try to sit and then someone's left out (laughs) that's a nice image it's like almost a way to do scapegoating but in a very like machinic fashion without it's like a lottery almost like drawing straws for who's gonna who's gonna eat the sin and like take the L basically. That's all very (laughs) pulling. Yeah. It's it's also that like, uh, like we've been saying, right. This like injection of the element of anti-production into the heart of the process again on an expanded scale, Mm -hmm. right. That like keeps the motors running, but by doing this completely, I don't know, untenable thing on the basis of like a, an irresolvable contradiction or something. Yeah. One of the ways that I try to understand, because we talked about it a little bit earlier, right. About when they quote Schmidt, and uh, not Carl Schmidt, but or maybe it's not Schmidt here. Maybe the quoting Bernhoff, because Curse Lake has a great fucking essay on this very question. But who is it that has the the strange? It is Schmidt. It's Bern- Bernard Schmidt, not a uh, Carl Schmidt, the political kind of fascist guy. But he's <laughs> he's talking about the uh, blow possessing a power of mutation that does not enter into income and is not assigned to purchases of pure availability, non-possession and non-wealth, right? Where we talked about this hollowing out that banks do, right? They kind of, they kind of enter a debt to themselves that they pay back, right? With their sort of interest and dividends and all this other stuff, kind of way that I understand them talking about sort of machinic surplus value is this move from, this kind of move from a point where financial flows and commodity flows were sort of limited, qualitative, sort of still trapped in this old body. And when there 
comes this point with the general equivalent of money and sort of the buildup, the breakdown of codes that we have, what they say, we move from the domain of the quantum or the quantitas, which here sounds like science of logic shit, to that of the differential relation as a conjunction that defines the eminent social field, particularly capitalism, and confers on the abstraction as such its effectively concrete value. It has taken upon itself the independence, the quality of the terms, and the quantity of a relation. The abstract itself posits a more complex relation within which it will develop like something concrete. Again, sounds like Hegel. But the point being, this is like Deleuze. <laughs> he always goes to this where it's about differentials, right? It's dy yes. dx, where dy derives from labor power and constitutes the fluctuation of variable capital, where dx derives from capital itself and constitutes the fluctuation of constant capital. It is from the fluxion, right? The rate of change at a given point of decoded flows from their conjunction that the filiative form of capital X plus DX, which is like total value plus or value plus surplus value, right? That it's this differential relation. It's this purely kind of quantitative differential relation that from which quality results rather than the opposite, right? Which was when we were back with codes, when different qualitative flows would sort of interact together, then they would sort of enter into the surplus value of code, but now they're in this, it's in this pure kind of surplus value of flux, you know, value begetting value. And I think that that's where they say we've moved from the surplus value of code to a surplus value of flux, right? Mm. I think that that's, okay. that's when they start talking about the tendency to a falling rate of profit. And that's where they're talking about these different flows of money and they can't, they're different like magnitudes, right? It's these different magnitudes that are almost incomparable. They say it's like trying to measure the distance between the stars and the distance between atoms with meters and centimeters, right? It's, right. This, it's this almost absurd, they call it a dissimulation, right? It's, it's almost the sleight of hand, but it's it's not like it's an illusion or it's like false consciousness, right? It is, um, it is this they kind of say, uh, I mean, we could read this. Someone else maybe wants to read this. This We can try to work this out, right? This paragraph, this full paragraph, right, of 237. Do we want to read through this? Otherwise, I feel like I'm fucking granting. So the definition of surplus value must be modified in terms of the machinic surplus value of constant capital, which distinguishes itself from the human surplus value of variable capital and from the non-measurable nature of this aggregate of surplus value of flux. It cannot be defined by the difference between the value of labor capacity and the value created by labor capacity. That was the story of exploitation I was telling before. But by the incommensurability between two flows that are nonetheless imminent to each other, by the disparity between the two aspects of money that express them, and by the absence of a limit exterior to their relationship. The one measuring the true economic force, the other measuring a purchasing power determined as, quote, income. The first is the immense deterritorialized flow that constitutes the full body of capital. Then they've got the whole thing on Schmidt. Should I keep going or is that? We could pause there. I think that that's interesting because they recapitulated exactly what you were you were saying. When you were saying like, I have the first half of the story and they, and I think that that's very much perhaps the one of the main key components, right? Of, as you said, chapter six of, of volume one of Capital. And so I think they're trying to build out this because they do say earlier with uh, this difference between purchasing power and these kind of mutant financial flows that, yeah, what do they say that that's like the, the true, that's the meaning of the return to, to the Marxist theory of money, right? Where I think this is on 230, where they say one of Keynes's contributions was the reintroduction of desire into the problem of money. It is this that must be subjective requirements of Marxist analysis. 
This is why it is unfortunate that Marxist economists too often dwell on considerations concerning the mode of production and on the theory of money as the general equivalent as found in the first section of capital without attaching enough importance to banking practice, to financial operations, and to the specific circulation of credit money, which would be the meaning of a return to Marx to the Marxist theory of money. So perhaps that gives us another clue of what they're trying to call machinic surplus value. This is where one of um, Deleuze's lecture, one of his seminars is good on this. And I have to, I would have to go back and look at it. I almost did, but where he actually spends a whole seminar talking about Keynes and, oh, really? uh, cool. and, and anti-Oedipus to kind of, no talk, way. To, yeah. So <laughs> I need to see that because it's this notion of non-possession and non-wealth. I think that is part of the paradox of what the machinic surplus value is doing here. The pure availability <laughs> to sort of owe oneself money and buy one's own bootstraps, sort of pay it back off with interest. Kind of like giving oneself a gift and accruing a more intense counter gift to oneself, right? It, to yeah. use the primitive kind of most model. I think that's part of the, the sort of contradiction. Yeah. Because or the uh, paradox. The like paradox. we said on the just to use the example again of dual entry accounting, right? It's like those mm. those liabilities and credits sort of annihilate one another the way that proton and anti-proton might or whatever. That's a really interesting line that you drew our attention to, Taylor. Like the the chastising the Marxists here for reading volume one and not getting to volume three, basically. <laughs> okay, there you go. That's you know. It's like, yeah, you all talk about money as though the last word on the subject is money as general equivalent and not when, you know, we get to volume three, Marx is like all this stuff to say about fictitious capital and like, you know, interest bearing capital and speculation and yeah, loan capital, this sort of new set of relations needs to be taken into account. And like, yeah, so like after Keynes has brought desire back into the economic question, okay, remember that other stuff. What does that look like? What is desire? What is desiring production in the context of speculative finance look like? That's going to be different than just noticing that there's a difference in magnitude between how much a worker produces and how much they're paid in the wage, right? Something else is going on there. So yeah, that does sort of help me understand a little bit better what might be going on with machinic surplus value. I still feel like I can't say it straight, but we're, I feel like we're getting closer. You know what I mean? The creation ex nihilo that we're talking about, yeah. right? That we've been talking yeah. about. And then there's sort of purchasing power or salaried wages, which they call the flux and the reflux, right? right. This is on the next page. But then they say, and this is about, this gets us back to anti-production and the role of the state and the military industrial complex and uh, all, all that that helps to absorb surplus value, right? Because they say if surplus value isn't absorbed, it's basically still virtual. It's not even, it has to be sort of actualized. And they say uh, these revenues, they're talking about the flux and the reflux, right? And these revenues that continue to escape, these revenues are trapped by the firms and in turn form an afflux. So we have three terms here. Form an afflux by means of a conjunction, a flow this time uninterrupted of raw profit constituting at one go an undivided quantity flowing over the full body, however diverse is the uses for which is allocated interest, dividends, management salaries, purchase of production goods, etc. So this is like, I think that the afflux, just to like simplify, I think that what I understand by afflux is this becoming imminent yet incommensurable of these other two flows, right? Mm. Of the, of sort of- Wage capital. Uh, right, exactly. And, fi and, and finance capital. Yes. 
I am reminded of that, like it's from much earlier in the in the book. I think it might be from chapter one where they say something like, "Everything makes so much sense except for that it is completely irrational at its core." Like there, you know, there's this yeah. systematic character to capitalism and its like form of development and expansion that, like, yeah, it's all perfectly rational except that it's fucking crazy. Like I feel like I'm like having one of those vertiginous moments where it seems like it's both somehow. And uh, trying to think about yeah, afflux and reflux here. This is good, too, because it helps to shed light on something they say. This is 232 and 233, where it's like, you know, if you consider Adam Smith to have talked about this abstract, subjective uh, wealth making attribute, just as Luther talked about faith in terms of this abstract, subjective attribute. And Freud makes the libido into this abstract, abstract, subjective attribute. There is this sense in which you have like personified capital, the capitalist, the worker, the merchant, the banker. But on the other hand, you have every technical machine presupposes a particular type of flow, flows of code that are both interior and exterior to the machine, forming the elements of a technology and even a science. In pre-capitalist societies, these are kind of like cordoned off. And, and they'll keep talking about this in A Thousand Plateaus with like metallurgy and the blacksmith. Yeah. And those are suspect, you know, in, in earlier formations and have to be watched over. But they say, but the decoding flows in capitalism has free, deterritorialized, deterritorialized, and decoded the flows of code just as it has the others to such a degree that the automatic machine has always increasingly internalized them in its body or its structure as a field of forces, while depending on a science and a technology, on a so-called and on a so-called intellectual labor distinct from the manual labor of the worker. In this sense, it is not machines that have created capitalism, but capitalism that creates machines, and it is constantly introducing breaks and cleavages through which it revolutionizes its technical models of production. And I think, again, this is how they get us to Bateson, how they're trying to explain how the axiomatic functions in these differential relations of pure quantities, only after which we can have a quality rather than the other way around with codes and mm -hmm. flows. I think that that adds a little bit more to why they choose the word machinic here, even though it's one of Guattari's favorite words. You know, it can't be that arbitrary. It's on that same page, a little further down on 233, that they say that the true axiomatic is that of the social machine itself, which takes the place of the old codings and organizes all the decoded flows, including the flows of scientific and technical code for the benefit of the capitalist system and in the service of its ends. So it's right. It's not as though labor exploitation has gone away, but it's also working on figuring out how to extract value from treating codes. And I, I don't know, I think here maybe that they're thinking about something like technical knowledge, right? Or, I mean, they're tying it here to like technology and science is kind of like becoming unmoored or autonomous from its initial sort of site of discovery or enunciation, and then figuring out how that too can be productive or generative of value for itself as yeah. with everything. I wonder yeah. how this would, how this relates to say something like cryptocurrency, which is even a further abstraction of money, right? Like it's an even more bizarre and machinic evolution of money. Cryptocurrency has such a bizarre thing because it's not really, right? It's not quite currency. It's more like- well, Yeah, asset. it's, un, it's, it's unusable like, currency. Yeah, yeah. it's my, more like an asset, a new asset class, but it's like yes. got machinic components to it that are yeah. sort of having interesting relationships. Yeah, absolutely. No, and it like at each stage of its architecture as a technology, creates sites for the extraction of further value. So like itself is clearly, like we said, not at all meant to be used as a currency, like even just because like to transfer cryptocurrency, like that costs sometimes like between 50 and 
$10,000. So like, you're not going to be buying a cup of coffee with that. So it really on the first stage is just like an instrument of financial speculation, where like, you know, tying in with like things like NFTs, it's like, you want people to buy an NFT, which is to say, add to the blockchain in order to do that. And then the idea is you're going to be able to offload it later to another mark. It's basically an, a multi-level marketing scheme, right? You need more people to buy in so that you can sell your asset that will now have appreciated in value. But subterranean to that too, is that the adding to the blockchain technology, the, uh, what is it called? The mechanism proof of, uh, proof of purchase. I forget. It's, it's, proof, it's a proof mechanism that you are the one who gets to add to the next line of the blockchain it means you solve an increasingly complex mathematical equation, which really means that like the input here is processing power and maybe more fundamentally like energy, like electricity. Right, yeah. Going back right. to like my muscle metaphor, right? Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Pure, pure energy, pure capacity to perform work of some type, right? right? Whether that's Absolute. actual material work or like virtual work. Right. Building a warehouse full of even more powerful computers to solve the equation faster is an increasingly displaced limit, right? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. I despise cryptocurrency. I don't know if that's clear. I think it's one of the worst things that going that's, right now. That's that's one of the good things about Twitter and perhaps other social media sites, hopefully, is is the disdain for crypto bros and, and NFTs. Well, for me, it's like a rehash of Web 2.0 because that was going to be, and I bought into it quite you know because i was kind of like in grad school during that period of time whenever social media was really erupting and like i thought oh yeah this is going to be great this is really going to revolute open up voices and so forth <laughs> to, to do something and like democratize and be like this deterritorializing force and nope <laughs> there was the commensurate re-territorialization <laughs> another like again so this actually goes to something that Deleuze and Guattari say in, in anti-oedipus in this section is talking about how the commons are continually like it's not just or primitive accumulation right it's like it's not just at the dawning of capitalism that primitive accumulation occurs it continues it's done all time yeah it's, yeah it's a continuous process and you can see that it's, this is like basically you can kind of see that the way that the big tech companies like apple google twitter facebook etc have really the digital commons have been captured or whatever those are no longer exist in a sense yeah, what's really great about that example too is that the first pass understanding of like original or primitive accumulation is like there is literally stuff land in common that is subject then to enclosure, right? And on that understanding, you might think that, well, there's like a finite set of things that can be captured and, you know, privatized and turned into a market and subject to market logics for like, you know, the production or valorization of value. But with like the digital commons, with the stuff like NFTs, it's like, no, they're like producing a new commons to then be. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. Lead, it's uh, almost like the money. It's almost like the surplus money to, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of the same, like producing something out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah then like Exactly. Self-moving substance. We hate mm -hmm. to see it. <laughs> <laughs> the decoded flow, man, it escaped. And now, it, it, now we're thralls to it. Yeah. Oedipus at last. Oedipus at last. Yeah, sorry, I totally hijacked your. Yeah, we kind of got away from you. No, I mean, I, we we may not have time for it. I was just, I didn't really draw anything. My the stuff we kind of have already discussed, I think, was what I was like more drawn to this kind of political economy and like drawing on the marks and, it's, and it's, flux and money and surplus, etc. It's definitely the denser and more difficult stuff. And I was wondering in my head, reading this was if Oedipus at last was a dark, humorous statement like free at last, free at last. 
yeah, right? If it was like playing off of that, or if that was just a, uh, it's probably the translator's dark humor, if anything, right? Uh, <laughs> I'd have to check the, the French, but one of the only interesting philosophical things besides the culmination of the whole chapter was the way that Deleuze uses simulacrum in a mm. way that is negative, you know, because in the appendix of logic of sense and then different repetition, you know, Deleuze is kind of on the side of simulacra. He's like, right. He's like, Hey, let's fuck up Plato. And, and, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, overturn Platonism. Over, yeah. Let's overturn the copy model distinction. And, you know, but here he's using it in a way that seems platonic and it's, it's in the, it's only in the very last paragraph where he is trying to kind of use simulacrum in a way uh, that itself could be talking about pushing Oedipus to its auto critique, right? To its self critique, just as the whole chapter was about capitalism being able to conduct its own self critique. And so sort of Freud doesn't get us there, right? It's like, like Freud doesn't, doesn't quite get us to Oedipus conducting its own self critique. And so he says, um, you know, to discover beneath the familial reduction, the nature of the social investments of the unconscious, to discover beneath the individual fantasy, the nature of group fantasies, or what amounts to the same thing, to push the simulacrum to the point where it ceases to be the image of an image, right, Plato, so as to discover the abstract figures, the schizes flows that it harbors and conceals. And the last sentence is kind of brings us back to the very first chapter of the book to overturn the theater of representation into the order of desiring production. This is the whole task of schizoanalysis, right? Which I don't think they mean that one last sentence, that that little list that they give of, condu of Oedipus conducting its own critique. So that use of simulacrum, he kind of shows his hand that the way he's using mm. it is precisely in a kind of platonic sense that when we say sort of we all have our little internalized colony, right, which kind of makes sense in light of everything we've said about the periphery and the core and the axiomatic, you know, the way he's deploying simulacrum is now kind of in, a, in an ironic platonic gesture and, and no longer in the way in which he's tried to appropriate it to turn it against Platonism. So it's, I just thought that was a kind of an interesting little like footnote to add. Yeah, it's interesting. There's continuity here. There's continuity with his earlier projects, right? Like this is also like the task he sets himself and then think in a difference in repetition, right? Like representation is that which like stifles or suffocates difference in itself yes. in its various forms. And I, I think that book fails on its own terms for a variety of reasons. And it's as though like he still is obsessed with this problem of overturning the theater of representation. But now with Guattari seems to recognize that like, oh no, this has to be like a political project that contests yes. Oedipus and capitalism directly. You can't just do it by, I don't know, reading Duns Scotus better or something. Yeah. It'd be, you know, it'd be really flippant. <laughs> I, mean, but, I mean, even if there are political stakes in difference repetition and and logic of sense his two kind of like i won't say master works but you know his two mature works oh, yeah. not the non-monographs those political besides perhaps the image of thought chapter and different which is the one towards the end of his life where he's like if there's one thing i keep from different repetition would be image of thought that stands on its own and i do think that that, that still has allows it, it that still has the most political consequences but in terms of the rest of the project if it's still kind of in the background here, obviously with Guattari, he's mobilizing those forces he's tapped into, as you said, these other political pro or these other philosophical projects, and he's 
tapping them directly into a militancy to a revolutionary machine right you know that's that's kind of Guattari's merit there I will just say that I think it's very funny that he calls Freud the Luther and the Adam Smith of psychiatry. I just think that's great. <laughs> that's why I had to drop that uh, just a minute <laughs> it's ago a good when, line. I was, when I was kind of talking about the, yeah, I had to drop those in because I, I like that too. That was a, uh, he's got was, a couple of these moments. They have a couple of these moments, right? Earlier he calls them like a, a masked Al Capone and a, and a Sophocles. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. yeah, that's right. He calls them because uh, I, I forget all three of them, but they, they reject. There's a third one. Yeah. Well, they have three aspects of Freud that they lay out, and uh, a racketeer is one, right? Yeah, uh, the masked that, Al Capone. Yeah, the masked Al Capone. Also, this he becomes kind of this dogmatic grandfather that that's worried about psychoanalysis uh, future, which might yeah. be. A st- but the the thing they want to preserve is the sort of young, adventurous, exploratory Freud, right? The Freud of the three essays. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah exactly. Any last thoughts, Coop, Gill? I'm fluxed. <laughs> fluxed out. Fluxed yeah. out, man. Blissed out on flux. I, the anti-production has sort of yeah. come into play <laughs> the now. Lact- the and, lactic uh, acid has, exactly, has right. seized up the production. The yeah. libindle band is beginning to sort of to reach a down. stasis point. Yeah, exactly. Well, Gil, uh, plug your projects and uh, let our listeners know where they can follow you. Uh, Sure. Thanks so much. I am one of the co-hosts of a podcast called What's Left of Philosophy. You can listen to it basically wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple, et cetera, et cetera. We do have a Patreon if you want to support us, but you should listen to our episodes. We keep a, keep a lot of them unlocked. We only have some exclusive content. You can follow us at Left of Phil on Twitter. I'm on Twitter too, at GD, my last name, GD Morejon. And this was great. Thank you guys both so much for having me. It was a, it was a delight. I'm really glad we took last week off so we could uh, work you in. And, and I'm so glad yeah. that this, this book and, and especially these sections has meant a lot to you as well. It really came through. And we'll put all of that, all your information in the in the show notes for the listeners. Coop, do you want to read us out? Very much enjoyed having you, Gil. And I had a lot of fun. I knew I knew this was going to be a lot of fun, no matter what, just based on the, the reading itself. But I was very excited to have you. We were able to bring you after all. So once again, that will be another edition of The Machine of Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off. Of of including the ultimate form of security, which is